Hey gang, it's John. Thanks for listening to our most recent episode of Book Club. This week we are welcoming John Robb. John is the author of a fantastic new book called The Art of Darkness, The History of Goth. Isn't that a great name? Not The Heart of Darkness, The Art of of Darkness. This book is massive. If you don't know John, he has been running the website Louder Than War, which is a music and culture website for years. He's a music writer. He's written tons of books. He's been in a couple punk bands. He's a talking head when it comes to anything music or culture related. He's just one of those thinkers, you know, one of those people like a Mick Wall or a Toure or one of these people who you hear from that you want to know more about because they're really smart and they tell you interesting things about culture and music. Well, he's written the history of goth. This book is massive. I'm not even done with it yet. We have a copy to give away, by the way, so listen at the end. So we really get into it in this conversation. It it could have gone on forever because when you really stop to think about it, we start trying to discuss and define what is what makes up goth? Is punk rock goth? Does goth have a moral code? What's goth's sexuality? What attracts people to goth? Are people in small towns still goth? Are, uh, is it just wearing black? Is it anyone with a rebellious nature? What defines it? What makes it fall under that goth umbrella? It being movies or music or artists or art or whatever, thinking, philosophy. So we cover all of it. Where did it start? Who were the first goths? Why did it start? All of those kinds of things are covered in this book and addressed in this conversation. I really love this, and the book is fantastic. I'll tell you how to get a copy, obviously, of Patreon at the end. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Robb. He's great. Where are you? You look so dasher, dashing and everything. Where are you? Uh, I'm, I'm sat in a, uh, an arts cafe in Manchester, near oh, where I live. Oh, nice. Uh, called Hope. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and I'm not going to... I mean, I have to wear my tracksuit bottoms because I can't put my tracksuit on because you've got one arm. <laughs> I can still wear a proper jacket because you just yeah. drape it over your shoulders, don't you? Yeah. So, so oh, where about the unit? I'm in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. I've been there once. Uh, I was, we were on tour with a band and we stopped in Denver or maybe Boulder, I can't remember which one. Uh-huh. And we went to a vegan restaurant. I don't know why we went there. We must have been on the way somewhere. Maybe we played a gig in Denver. So like, yeah, we did. No, I remember now. We yeah. did play a gig. But I can't, I can't remember where it was. It was about six years ago. And it's a really um, beautiful city. I remember a lot of mountains, and it was yeah, quite warm. We love it here. Um, I'm originally from Salt Lake City. Have you ever played or been through Salt Lake City? Twice I've played Salt Lake City. 
it's a strange place, but it's uh, <laughs> it's one of the most amazing audiences in America. Okay. You know, yeah, this is why I bring this wonderful. up because every time I mention that to someone, someone like you, especially in the alternative music world, they say something like that because it's everyone else thinks Salt Lake City. That's like Mormonville. There's nothing going on there, but the crowds are great. Tell me a t Salt Lake City story. Oh, when well, we just played there, the crowd would just went completely berserk and had a massive punk scene. Yeah, and, and we stayed there some of the locals, and then something about the city now. The temple's got a record of every Mormon ever in the temple, aren't they? So uh -huh. everybody's got their own little thing on the supercomputer, aren't they? <laughs> the people are really friendly. And it was, uh, I, don't, I mean, I don't care what religion people have been telling me, yeah. you want, you know, it doesn't yeah. bother me at all. Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad I went there because my perception of it would have been, uh, you know, because I, I thought they were like sort of slightly modern version, more modern version of the Amish. Yep. Head, a know? lot of people do. Because yeah. I see the Amish. In, yeah, Philadelphia, it's in the the horses and carts and yeah. speaking ancient German. And, you know, that's a power to them, whatever, you know. And it's, sure. uh, that's my exception to Lake City, because Lake City is a really modern city. Yeah. But because the, geo the geography of it, it feels like it's on Mars because it's surrounded by mountains and it's in that dip. And yeah. it's completely isolated from anywhere else, isn't it? And it's, uh, yeah. so, like, well, Denver's like a version of that. It, it, was, it felt, because everything, thing is when you're from britain you always think america is sort of similar to britain but what you don't realize everything in america is, is about 20 hours from over else right. <laughs> each city is utterly isolated <laughs> whereas here and americans don't realize this that liverpool to manchester is 30 miles you know right they're, right. they're very, very different cities but they're actually ne in america we'd be one city <laughs> yeah it's crazy isn't it our perceptions yeah i'm going to touch on this a little bit more later um, i'm going to put you on the spot though I want to kick this off with a song that you think is one of the great goth songs, rock songs. What song do you think, think just it, epitomizes everything? I think as much as the band will hate me for saying this, because this is quite important to realize when we talk about goth, is that every band hates the term goth. We'll explain that as we get into the interview. Uh -huh. But the defining song, and maybe the song that really tied together all the, the traits that around before and pretty well templated it for uh, generations. It's got to be Bella Goes is Dead by Bauhaus. Yeah. yeah. Because it's, everything is in that song. It's an incredible piece of music. It's, I mean, it's eight minutes long, experimental, a dark dub track you can dance to. It's kind of ghoulish and dark, genuinely uh -huh. dark, you know. Yeah. But also tongue in cheek and quite funny mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and the sounds they create in that song are like nothing you've heard before. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing piece of music. I think we get really used to it because it's been, it came out such a long time ago that it's sort of threaded into the alternative community. But I remember when it came out, I remember when John Peel, who's a big DJ, Britain, played it. Mm -hmm. It really was a wow, what the hell is that piece of music? You know, it's, mm -hmm. there isn't really a piece of music that sounded like that before mm -hmm. that. You know, and I think they are, they are an amazing band. You know, I think they're, they're, they're one of the most amazing bands in the scene. And it's been really great watching the Love and Rockets tour from distance over here, watching it all on YouTube. Those gigs, wow! I mean, yeah. that's not that's not that's not just a comeback tour. They re reinvented live the live gig for the twenty first century. The live show of that is completely mind blowing. You know, you think I, I like the way they that they just go, okay, we're going to stop that doing the project. <laughs> 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 I, I am emailing them saying, look, you've got to play Britain. Everyone's watching. I over know. Here. They weren't that big in Britain. 
Well, they're huge in America, so this, this is a weird uh, They weren't that big over there? Massive. Huh. No, they, in Britain, they're looked on as being this kind of weird project after Bauhaus. Oh. In America, they're the huge bounce that came out of this weird project called Bauhaus. Exactly. So they had, a, they had a number two hit in America, didn't they? So yep. they can sell the tickets there. But I think they came to Britain now. They play their biggest gig because I think now everybody's like watching all these the videos on the YouTube going, whoa, geez, mm -hmm. this is really good. You know, it's like mm -hmm. they, they, they don't seem like a dusty old band. You know, they no. they feel closer to anybody's making anything groundbreaking at the moment. They slot in perfectly with that, you know, and I think it'd be great if they came back, really. You know, yeah. the Roundhouse in London would be the perfect show. I agree. Uh, it's funny. I First of all, I just keep waiting. They haven't come through Denver yet. I keep waiting for them to hopefully come through here so I can see them. I was supposed to interview David J recently, but his people told me that he didn't want to talk about Bauhaus or Love and Rockets. And I've no offense to David J, but I thought that's what I want to talk about. You know, we don't have to talk about the whole, spend the whole time, but I do want to touch on those things. And if you're going to say no, then let's not bother. You know what I mean? But anyway. Um, I think to be fair to be fair to David, he does a, a lot of great esoteric projects of his own. He I does. Mean, he he does that. Yes, he does one with uh, Victor De Lorenzo from the Violent Femmes, who's been on here. And I was ready to talk about that too, but I wanted to at least have the freedom to touch on those. other. We didn't have to spend all the time and I'm like, eh, just let yeah, it go. I know what you mean. It, it's, it's nice if you, if you do the whole picture in it. But sure. I understand if he get if he gets bored of it because I'm sure he does. Things, people are gonna go. So why with Peter Murphy? How come he's why with Bowers? He's gonna get that question straight away. Exactly. It's awkward. You don't want to talk about it. And that. Yeah. Um, but you know what will happen? You start talking to him, and then after three minutes, you get the report. And he started telling you about it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> Especially that's true. Back and tour that looks that good. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. That's so true. He would. Um, okay, I, let's talk about the new book. Um, I will tell you. I normally don't talk to people until after I've read their book, but I got the book, and it is so massive. I'm on page 102, and uh, I started reading it, and the whole first part is sort of building up to the the beginning of what goth is like Dionysus is the first rock star and the Marquis de Sade and Edgar Allan Poe and Arthur Rimbaud and all this stuff. And I'm like, I really want to talk to John cause I'm dying to read this book, but it might take me forever to finish it. I don't know when I'll get done with it. And so I just agreed to do, I wanted to talk to you so bad. I'm doing it before I'm done. I hope that's okay. But yeah, that's cool. Yeah, okay. well, there'll be no spoilers. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Well, and the rest of the book is more about the bands. Each chapter is kind of about one of the key bands in goth music. And but the beginning is all a buildup or a history of how where goth even came from. Why did you write this book? I mean, I can imagine built based on your history and I mean, you, with the membranes and stuff, you've been in this world for a long time. Did you feel like it needed a book to explain it all? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was a fan of the music. And there have been academic books before. Mm -hmm. And the big Mick Mercer's book where he's, he's done an encyclopedia on God. I thought a pop culture book that did the whole thing, you know, with, with all those people you mentioned and put it all into context that, uh, you know, the Marquis de Sade, to Rimbaud, to Baudelaire, all the way through to the doors to Goth. There's a story he's telling there, and it needs to explain why that road joins together. You know, it's, they're not separate things. There, there is a lineage there, you know, 
um, the, the the modern well the trad, modern trad rock artists like Nick Cave or mm-hmm. Bauhaus or whatever their modern equivalents of Baudelaire. You know, it's, it sounds pretentious, but that's I think pretentious is important to pop culture. And it's so so I was tying together these fragments to tell the tale and unpack what Goth was. I thought it was also very misunderstood form in the UK. It used to get terrible press so when it first came out. It, all the bands got really bad reviews. It was, it was, it was kind of looked on as a bit of a joke seen by cruel London media people, not by the fans. Mm. Um, so I need to explain that, and I need to explain that these, some of these bands are some of the greatest art rock bands that this country's ever produced. You know, and I want to put them into that context that they, they weren't just people who dressed in fancy clothes making weird music. This, this is a genuine artful movement that should be taken seriously you know so so that, that those are all key parts of the book really yeah what do you when i was reading back as you were sort of laying the groundwork for modern gothic and i'm trying to think what what are some of the the similar threads that people like the ones we mentioned up until like you say the doors are the first goth band and i'm thinking what are the what are the common threads among these people is it a I think you even mentioned there's a part in the book where you talk about James Dean and Elvis and Johnny Cash. And those are kind of, I don't know, are they the ones, are they touch points of goth? They're not literally goth, but because of their counterculture stance, maybe their spirit of rebellion, maybe their um, a ten- slight tendency toward a darker side, especially with Johnny Cash. Is that what aligns them with gothic mysticism, I guess? Yeah. I think I think uh, you got it there. Really. I think for me, it was their exploration of the darker side of yeah. human, human nature, human life. You know, not not shying away from the big themes like sex and death. You know, I think that that's important as well. I mean, a lot of pop culture can be very linear, and very narrow, which is okay. You know, it's everything's got its place. But um, the, the most fascinating artists for me are the, the artists that really embrace the beyond and the darker stuff and the big themes in life. You know, like yeah. you know. So, and all those artists did sometimes, not consciously, sometimes consciously, you know, and the dark shadows are fascinating. They always have been as well. So a lot of those literary figures will cover those sides as well. A lot of those, a lot of the paintings would as well, you know. And, uh, yeah. And, yeah, so, so it's it's an exploration of the shadows that makes it all very fascinating and, and very poetic as well, I think. I think that's a important thing. I think, in a way, all those strands really do coalesce with the doors, you know, the doors are the first band in rock culture to be called Gothic, with the IC on the end, Gothic, not Goth. Mm-hmm. In their first gig, uh, gig in New York City in 1967, the reviewers said um, they Gothic overtones their music. And some people go, I don't see it at all. But if you describe the doors, it just it's completely Goth, isn't it? Yeah. The singer yeah. dressed in black leather, sings in a baritone, does this kind of amazingly florid, poetic lyrics about sex and death influenced by romantic poets in a baritone voice, you know, with mm-hmm. all this darkly funereal music, um, is completely goth in description and a massive sure. influence on the scene as well, you know. So all the bands in the original goth scene, the post-punk goth scene in England, nearly every single one of them will probably quote Jim Morrison as a conscious or as an unconscious influence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Will Sargent from Echo and the Buddymen has been on here. And they're obviously, I think of as as a goth band or a goth adjacent at least band based on like you all the hallmarks that you just mentioned and he's a they're gigantic you even mentioned it in here they're gigantic 
Doors fans and the cover of People Are Strange and stuff. And I was thinking, what? Yeah, it's, what it's, it's makes a brilliant somebody version a, as well. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh, yeah, well, actually, I can pick up on that because you said God for Jason. Yeah. I do like that term because I did a chapter on that and I wish I'd used that term in it, but I was just calling them dark indie bands. Right. Musically, uh, the Jesus and Mary Chain and, and that could have been them. If you listen to them, they they put they would fit very, they would fit because there's not there's not actually uh, one musical style and got like there wasn't really one musical style in early punk. You know, it was mm-hmm. it's a feeling. You know, you felt it, and you could feel that in in the Bunny Men or the Mary Chain. But I suppose aesthetically, they look just different enough to be on the other side of things. So mm-hmm. even when the Mary Chain were in their black leather period. They still looked more like an indie band dressing in black leather than a goth band dressing in leather. There's a slight difference. It's slightly less rock and roll in a way. And the Bunny Men as well. I mean, the Bunny Men very much have their own thing aesthetically. You know, for people my age, you know, growing up with the Bunny Men, you still think of them in their army gear, you know, that when they had that brilliant camouflage period, you know, and that was the look and things. But their music definitely picks up on all the themes and definitely has that swirling. Uh, darkness that a lot of the goth bands would embrace as well. I mean, Andrew Eldritch from the Sisters of Mercy, when I interviewed him, was talking about, um, I mean, he, he hates the term goth, and he said it, to him that he felt them more like an M62 band, which is a motorway that runs from Liverpool through Manchester to Leeds. And it doesn't go to Sheffield, but you can sort of make a little bend there. And, and he said they're an M62 band because that road joined all the bands together with a similar aesthetic in the post punk oh, Interesting. So, like, say, like the Bunny, Bunny Men in Liverpool, Joy Division Manchester, Sisters of Leeds, and uh, Comsat Angels in Sheffield, they, they don't sound the same to each other, but they definitely embrace the same darkness. Because, you know, at the time, it was, it was a darker period. You know, we, we yeah. had a, a, terrible, a terrible Tory government and the world was on the brink of nuclear war. I mean, you know, it's hard to imagine times like that now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Boy, the bad old days. Are here again. No, no, actually. That, 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 that was uh, British sarcasm because it's exactly I know, I know, I know. <laughs> We're living it too, man. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Oh, I know, I know. You got it worse. You know, we we yeah. we, we, we get we get the pound shop version of Trump. We don't get the proper one. We just get Johnson, who's he's like the shit version. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't understand it. it. Yeah. yeah, good for you. No, but good for you. We'll change, we got rid of we'll him too, but he won't go away, and neither will his people. So we're no, stuck with him. He's still he's still the most popular uh, Republican Republican candidate. But well, I don't think he'll win the election. But I don't either. I think the problem in America is that I don't think I think they really need to find a better candidate than Joe Biden. I think trouble with politics now is so devalued that anybody with ideas who wants change doesn't go into politics. You know, I've had the exact same music, thought. I, I, yeah. I've often thought that all my life that a lot of friends of mine who are very good at political things and ideas things don't go anywhere near politics. They're playing bass and a bouncer. If you want to go into politics, you realise that you can't change anything. But then, then you realise that all the changes now are getting made on the outside of the political system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and the changes that we need to make and, and a lot of the MAGA people in America don't want us to make, but when they do get made, they'll embrace them, you know, and, you know, I, I don't agree with any of those people politically, but I'm not against them as people. You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, we have to bring them with us. We're, we're all here at the same time. We're all, we're all on the same boat, aren't we? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, okay, I want as I'll far as the, to them, oh, go I agree with them. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I'll, 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 yeah, I think it's important to listen. And uh, it's not a war, this, is it? You know, the people who are politically diagrammatically opposite to you, you still have to somehow 
embrace him like he's some kind of weird Buddhist, Buddhist it's true. meditation. <laughs> well, and you like, I have many in my family, you know, and I've got to see them at Christmas and we got to figure it out. So it's. Yeah, uh, but I bet you get on with it, you know. This, I'm yeah. from Batman, America. Saw across the middle of America. I meet the most outrageous political people who are some of the nicest people I've ever met, you know. Mm-hmm. And they, they hold views that are opposite to the way they uh, function as people, which, yeah. which I find quite weird, you know. But they're, they're really nice, the best homes, they'll do anything for you, you know. Then they start talking, think, how do you even think that? That's it's not like you as a person, you know. It's just, it's like a, it's like a, an elastoplast opinion. It's, uh, <laughs> it's so true oh my gosh it's so true speaking of which i had written this down as a thought does gothic it seems to me that the hallmarks of goth now i think when when we think of gothic music and we think of gothic culture 90 percent of that comes from the uk other than the doors being maybe the first gothic band they may have sparked something but I don't think a lot of what we think of as modern Gothic music or, or scene or culture came from America. And if it did, I don't think it really came from the heartland of America. So I was wondering if what your take on people who identify, like I was thinking, if you identify as a goth, you can do that from anywhere. In fact, that's probably a popular thing. Like you were, t- we were talking about Salt Lake City earlier. There's, People who feel other than and outside of the mainstream and outside of bigger cities where things are happening out in the heartland, and they see something in this alternative lifestyle of goth that appeals to them because it's something for them to sink their teeth into. But I don't feel like, but like, you know, the Marquis de Sade is not going to come from Des Moines, Iowa, or... Edgar Allan Poe isn't going to come from Boise, Idaho, necessarily. Do you see a correlation between where the true Gothic innovators come from and big cities versus little cities? It's interesting. You mentioned uh, those two towns, Boise and and Des Moines. I've been to both of those. Yeah. (laughs) Boise is actually like one of the biggest growing cities in america actually it's huge really uh, yeah it's 15 years since i went there and it felt very backwatery oh yeah but, i mean i liked it there you know it's interesting <laughs> stay there overnight on the tour and then uh, i played a gig there i actually played there we, there was a diy show we played in the garage it was a cool gig it felt like the only 20 people in some alternative culture were in that gig that that night you know right um the Des Moines, where Slipknot came from, and, and an amazing band from the 80s called Holy Genius. So was, we played there, we played Des Moines in uh, 87, no and they way. kept in touch with me. Every, every 10 years, I hear from that guy, you know, thinking, when I'm 90, he's going to be sending messages. <laughs> and they were a great band. But, but it, it really was, well, there's two things there. One, one the British thing, what we do in this country, we, we, we definitely really good at um, tying up strands of culture making them into into uh, scenes you know like i mean yeah this, you can have an internal argument to invent a punk and there isn't like a big bang moment but when it became a cultural 360 you know with the the, the attitude the culture the clothes the politics the whole circle it's definitely with the sex pistols i mean yep. I'm, I'm not running down the ramones the ramones are so influential so important but the ramones were almost uh, uh harking back you know they're back to the glory days of the 50s uh, rock and roll bands. It's just the beauty of the Ramones. Mm-hmm. And the Pistols are a whole new thing, you know. So it's uh, 
it was, it was, it was a reinvention of ideas that are in the air. It's, it's, it's a very discernible culture. And Goff was the same. So, of course, somebody could say, you know, well, what about this band here? You know, and, you know, suicide, you could argue, you know, it's 1968, Ooh, not band. But an influence, yeah, yeah, they're influenced. But they tended to influence people in Britain in a way that was profound, that we would then turn into a wholly different culture that becomes culture. You know, that's what we're good at. Because clothes, as you know, to, you know, even with my fucked up arm, I still got my best jacket on. is <laughs> is a very British thing, you know. It's uh, a dandy, isn't it? I mean, uh-huh. and I, I, I mean, I, I won't wear a tracksuit top. I've got tracksuit bottoms on because I've got my feet into my trousers. So I've got no shorts. <laughs> I've only got one arm, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love um, it. But, but the clothes, the clothes, and these equations are important. That's why I got Johnny Marr on the book. Johnny, yeah. Uh, it's, Johnny really understands this because he's. I don't know if you, if you ever interview Johnny, it was an amazing interview. He'll tell you why he wears He went the quest to get a pair of socks to go with a certain record of 1974, the right collars on the right shirt. He worked in clothes shops, you know. He he managed a clothes shop in Manchester when he was 16, you know. That's that's Johnny for you. That's British pop culture. It's, it's you learn all the guitar stuff, but you also make sure you have the right clothes to do it, you know. Ooh, I love it. It's so important, whereas in America. Yeah. And it's, this is this is not a not a slobbing thing, just different. You know, America sure it is. was always, you know, it's always a t-shirt, a pair of jeans, and you could sound like twenty different styles of music, and nobody ever cared about that. When when the British bands used to go to America, I remember the eighties tour, and we were always called haircut bands. That was uh-huh. like a, an insult, but we were taking that as a compliment. <laughs> right, right, right. It's true <laughs> because it was it was it is really important in England. You look at those Little Rockets videos. You look at Daniel Ash now. Oh, Daniel's a year older than he's sixty-three. He looks absolutely amazing. Never seen look any better. Still does. He looks like a, spa- a space age future dandy. You know, so, whereas an American version of Daniel Ash would be there's some more. It looks pretty cool, but it has it's had the same sort of preppy college look for years. I mean, you know. That's fine, you know, but that shows is there's a there's a transatlantic difference. It's not yeah. like everybody in England thinks like that, but the people the cause of these scenes, the clothes, music, attitude, the equation is so important. And that's yeah. why I described the golf club in the first twenty pages of the book, because it's it's, it's how you danced and what you drank and, and how you moved around the room. It's all in yeah. there. Yeah. You know, it's it's all different versions of it and it's all count there's actions and counter reactions to it. Yeah, but it's important, you know. If you turned up with the wrong pair of shoes, yeah, I mean, everybody's allowed in. It was a free space, but it, it, it wouldn't look right, you know. It yeah, was, uh, there was it's, there's no dress code, but there's a nuance. It's kind of felt. Yeah. It's kind of known because a lot of the stuff was done on feeling, you know. You know, it's said uh, there, there are certain things that you know feel right within that context, within that framework. Yeah. But it wasn't like there was actually loads of rules written in the club. Well, not outside London. I think yeah. London's probably a bit more different, but. Uh, and the other part of this was a lot of this culture came out of um, small towns, small scenes. Mm. You, know, you picked up on that. You mentioned those small towns in America. And in a way, it happens in America as well. So Slipknot, who are actually a really fascinating band, you know, it's, they're not just mm. the metal flash patterns. Their music is quite experimental, yeah. quite out there, very bleak sometimes. Drum and bass loops mixed in with soundtrack, mixed in with metal. It's, you know, what? What they put together there was quite uh, um, exotic in a way, because yeah. they grew up in a small town. They could do that because they had the time to do it, and, and there's no notion of ever making it. You got three years where about nobody in the town gets what the fuck we're doing, and you just get on with it. And, and a lot of the gossip came out of some of the towns in England. I mean, yeah. I know they're not as exa- uh, not as 
in remote as American towns, which can be 20 hours away from the next right. city. But it felt like that in the 70s. You know, yeah. uh, you know, there's great... When I interviewed um, Gavin Friday for Virgin Bruins a few weeks ago, we did an event in Dublin, and he was talking about growing up in Dublin. You couldn't get the punk records. Huh. He, he would get the boats to Liverpool with everybody's order and a big bag and buy 30 punk rock singles and bring them back because you couldn't get wow. them in Ireland. Oh. You know, there's a lot of stories like that. You, it's not yeah. like now the internet, you can just go and listen to Spotify or somewhere. So yeah. even like Bauhaus, growing up in Northampton, which is only an hour from London, there's a sense of remoteness and the sense that you're putting a band together, no one's going to listen to it anyway. You're never going to make it. So you just do your own thing. And That's I think so that true. makes the greatest music. You, you become very sophisticated at making your own thing. And it's like when I, I've got the quote in the book, actually, Peter Hawk, you know, when when they started, you know, um, doing Joy Division, he never learned to play bass properly. He just kept hitting it until he made tunes. And when the Stones actually ran, when Bill Wyman left the Stones, he was on the shortlist in the Stones. Really? Peter Hawk? He's going, wow. Whoa. Yeah, he's going, wow, that'd be really cool. Yes. And then, then he goes, wait a minute, I can't, I can't play any covers. No, <laughs> I've only true. got one style of bass play. That's he's true. not fitting their own stones here. No, he had to wouldn't. turn it down. Yeah. And that, that was very typical of a lot of people from my generation. I think a lot of people didn't really learn musical instruments in a conventional way. They just learned them in their own way and honed it down to their own perfection. They became really sophisticated, really skilled at doing their own thing, which yeah. really makes the greatest music, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I, I I don't know any cover versions. I don't know if you're bits and bobs of other songs, but when I meet younger bands now, if I go to talk at music college, they they know every single Arctic Monkeys album inside out, which yeah. I, I guess is the best way to do it because you learn about how to construct songs properly, mm-hmm. and you're probably going to have a better career in music out of it. Mm-hmm. But for, for my generation, it was all about you do your own thing to a perfection whether anybody else likes it or not yeah yeah <laughs> it's, that's it's it to, it's totally it's stupid it's career advice but it doesn't make me the best art that's <laughs> true that's so true what are some of the uh that we were talking about the the fashionable common threads between goths like the black leather and the baritone voices and stuff like that but when i was reading especially the beginning part of your book i wondered if there was what are some of the common threads internally? Like, what is it that a kid sees about a gothic culture or lifestyle or look that appeals to them? Is it a is it gothic sense of sexual exploration? Is it their uh, counterculture rebellion? Is it a sense of morality? Is it a defiance against God? Is it I don't know. Like, what what appeals to that darkness? Why do people go there, do you think? I think people have always been interested in the dark side. You know, as I did a little bit in the book about European folk tales. I would have gone further into that, but just, yeah. I just didn't have the space for it. Didn't, the book could have been a million words if I yeah. had written it. I mean, even though I'm the publisher, but <laughs> can <you> imagine <laughs> that. Besides the book, no wonder the fuck they are. But <laughs> it's already huge. But, um, yeah. <laughs> People always, I, I like the image, I had the image in my head of people living in small villages, medieval times, in the middle of a forest, you know, in the little fire at night time, everyone sat around there, 10 feet away behind you in the forest, it's dark and it's spooky, and your mind starts to wander, and the folk tales of what lives in the forest and weird creatures, it's gothic in a sense, you know, and um, we've always been fascinated by the shadows and the darkness because it's always very close to it. And I think mm-hmm. it's a generational thing. And I think every generation deals with these blues, with whatever the contemporary technology is at the time. So, 
you know, in those times, it would be storytelling or folk songs or whatever, or it would be Gothic cathedrals, in a sense, or Gothic painting, Gothic literature in the 17th, 18th centuries. Or then in, in our time, because rock and roll culture was, was a predominant culture, you'd explore those themes in electric rock and roll culture. Whereas now, you'd explore those themes in social networking. So you get yeah. off Instagram or TikTok influencers who don't really have any music on there. Often they have any music involved. It's just them. A photograph them, ironically, standing in the forest, gone back to yeah. the forest again, yeah. dressing roughly clothes. And I think they're all equally valid. I th mm -hmm. think they're all reflecting the same kind of feeling, but in different ways, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the common themes that kind of join together, I think the most obvious one is the colour black, isn't it? I think yeah. Yeah. black is the colour, isn't it? But it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a fascinating colour. Because it's, 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 it's either all colours mixed together or no colours. It's, it's not even a colour. And either way, it's a contradiction, isn't it? It's, it's a really unusual thing. Also, everybody looks good in black. Mm -hmm. And black suggests a mood. Yeah. It's, it, is, it is a colour of death and it's a colour of sex. At the same time, it's a very sexy colour. Mm -hmm. It's also what a priest would wear when they bury it. So yeah. it's... <laughs> I it's, it can be very formal or very <laughs> informal. It's, it's, yeah. it's everything rolled into one, isn't it? So yeah. it's um, so that that's interesting. So um, is there is there a common ideology across cloth? Probably not. No, mm, I think I there's, wondered. There's probably a sense of exploration. There's a mm -hmm. there, there would be a fluidity in in I well, fluidity in ideas and sexuality for some people. For something you do meet very concerted goths. You know, there would be goths who aren't. I, I would say the general. Uh, political colour would be um, liberal left, you know, but that won't be everybody. That won't be, yeah. it'd be larger, but not large, not huge. It wouldn't be 90, 10%. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of a, a political gossip, have no interest in politics at all, you know, more interested in, in literature or, 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 or wider themes, you know, like um, nature, all those other ideas, you know. Um, a, lot, a lot of the songs are political, but in a sense, Walking around dressed like that in the late seventies was a political act, and again we yeah. look at the Virgin Prunes, who had this little gang in Dublin called the Lipton Village, with with you two, where they were dressed around in freaky clothes going around Dublin, mm -hmm. and not as a political act per se, but but the shock value of that was Ireland is a very stuffy, conservative country at the time. Mm -hmm. My argument to the book is by them dressed up walking around like that, they're eventually Ireland. It's, it's a kinetic effect, catalytic effect, that eventually turns Ireland into the, like this very liberal, open-minded country that it is now. It's a brilliant place now. Yeah. And in my argument we, would be that that was uh, Gavin Friday, Virgin Cruz, walk around in the dress in yeah. Dublin in 1977, started that process. So yeah. it's, when people talk about politics and music, it isn't always manifesto politics. I think it can be a haircut, it can be a sound of a record, it can be a suggestion of something else like... When that first time I played a gig in Russia 20 years ago, the guy I put it on was a hippie guy. He said the sound of the Beatles records was revolutionary because the, when they screamed on a record, the Beatles, it made you realize there was a freedom that was attainable. And he said the effect of that was so powerful. I think we tend to take pop culture for granted because it's everywhere we go now. Yeah. And he said when he first saw a picture of the Beatles with the long hair, and the joy in the music made him realise there was another life worth living. And his argument was that Glasnost starts the moment when his generation first heard the Beatles. Mm. He said, the other story he told me is that um, there's a rumour went round that Santana 
We're playing a gig in St. Petersburg in 1973 and 300,000 people turned up in the park and Santana weren't playing a gig. <laughs> they weren't anywhere near Russia at the time. And 300,000 people turned up and because they weren't there as a riot, yeah. he got arrested. And this shows the power of music, how many people turned up. And he got arrested and he said, look, you're going to get three months in jail or you can... Uh, you can go back into society, but you tell us who all the radical hippies are. And he said, I'll take you three months in jail. I mean, what a oh. dude. Oh, <laughs> he good said, for it, him. It ain't, no, it ain't no picnic in a Russian jail, that's yeah. for sure. Jeez, <laughs> oh, that's true. I want to ask you, you know, about the like, music. Oh, go ahead. And, you know, um, we have our counterculture arguments, don't we? Jesus, yeah. you know, it's like, they might not play your record on the radio. I mean, they're more subtle here, aren't they, in America? You know, they... You know, they, they don't stick you in jail. They just make sure no one gets to hear you, you know. Yeah. They've always been smart. The Russians, as, as we know now, with the war, fucking so clumsy, you know. just <laughs> they, You know, their idea of silencing somebody is pushing them out of a window. Yeah. What they do in America is they just make sure that person doesn't get anywhere near the radio. That's in right. In a way, they don't even notice. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, I'm in the Bowie section of the book, and Bowie's my number one. He's my favorite artist ever. And I wondered, you were talking about, a second ago, about the revolutionary, that guy hearing the Beatles scream and sensing freedom from that scream. You talk about, and it's a famous moment, when Bowie puts his arm around Mick Ronson on Top of the Pops or whatever, and that was such a provocative moment to see a man, and it wasn't even a sexual move, but because of the way Bowie looked and the way the Mick looked, it looked vaguely sexual, and that that kind of gave, that empowered a generation of people who were confused or dealing with their own sexuality, and I wondered if you see Bowie as the bridge between the doors, starting it, sort of, and the modern equivalent, which would have been Bauhaus, The Cure, Sisters of Mercy, those kinds of bands that we mostly think of when we think of God. 100%. I think each decade is a prime cultural driver, aren't they? Like Elvis, 50s, Beatles, mm -hmm. 60, Bowie, 70s, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, that moment, the Starman moment, I mean, it, it made, I mean, it didn't make, it didn't make everybody question the sexuality, but I think the people who were 13, 14, who were, worried about their sexuality felt it was okay you know i think yeah. that's really important yeah um I, I, also i think it made people completely heterosexual also feeling it was okay for the people who weren't heterosexual as well think right that's even more important in a way as yeah. well you know and it, good point and, and also it, it was just a really great rock and roll move as well for a lot of people you just look fucking cool <laughs> yeah yeah that's true <laughs> you know good point i think i think, I think a lot a lot of people were so young they didn't really get what what was going on there you know they yeah. just thought you know like wow that's amazing you know it's really it's only a second hit people forget that yeah his first hit had been three years before yeah. the space oddity and he, he was off the scene he, he looked like he's a one-hit wonder you know and, mm -hmm. and then and, and so when he turned up dressed like that with starman i mean it, and, and the other interesting is that nick robinson you know he, he looks he kind of looks feminine but he's not the slightest bit feminine at all not at all Linked to a big industrial town in the north, you know, and that was cool as well because it was kind of it's not there's nothing camp about Mick Robinson in the slightest. He looks like a burly guy dressed up but cool with it as well. You know, he looks he looked really good. It was, it was Bowie's more fluid than that. Yeah, I suppose the, the that was that was defining and also 
when he came out in the interview, he said he was bisexual in the Melody's Maker interview, which had been just before that, I think, remember. And that was quite key. But I remember people at school talk about that, and nobody really knew what bisexual was. People, mm. people go, does that mean he's got two girlfriends? I mean, it was so naive. It, was, it wasn't like, like now, everybody knows everything now. But then it right. was, people were naive. And I think people tend to look back on that time with a modern film, so a modern narrative. Yeah. And they think that everybody, of course, everybody was this, everybody was that. But most people didn't know, you know. Mm-hmm. I think to think for the people that it affected, it was a profound effect. It made them realize it was okay. And I think that's really important. Yeah. It was, it's almost like Bowie's putting his arm around these confused kids as well, you know, and yes. saying, you're going to be all right, you know, and all that. And I think that's, I think that's important. I think Bowie, maybe his role, obviously musically, you know, the, the scale of ambition and that, that is that period was really important as well. Those records were amazing, you know, yeah. and then lyrically, I don't think we talk about Bowie's lyrics enough. I think they're amazing. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, and also uh, culturally, so probably less so in America because you've got the slight after us, but in, in the early 70s, it reviews, if you talk about William Burroughs and Iggy Pop, yeah. and, but William Burroughs and Iggy Pop weren't on, on the fucking table for a 13-year-old right. in the 70s. Right. Iggy Pop was unheard of in Britain. The yeah. Doors weren't that known in Britain either. The Doors... Doors were a big cult band. They weren't like in America where they're a stadium band. They were known. Mm. You know, they had a couple of minor hits in England. Mm-hmm. Iggy was like not even 100th of that. Mm-hmm. So you put Iggy on the map and you put uh, Lou Reed on the map. Lou Reed mm-hmm. had a hit with Walk on the Wild Side. That's the first time I'd ever heard of Lou Reed. I mean, I love Walk on the Wild Side when I was a kid. I didn't yeah. know he was a bloke from the Bell Underground. I was 12, 13 and that. I mean, and, and, so that, that was Lou Reed's introduction to the mainstream. This, all, this is all because of Bowie. You yeah. know, Bowie didn't produce that record, but he facilitated Mick Ronson to produce that record and got his management in there to make Lou Reed into a proper glam rock star, you know, yeah. which is quite remarkable. He parachuted him into the middle glam rock and it worked. Yeah. So that's all, that's a Bowie style. Again, British, we love the style, you know, what he looked like, his hair, his clothes were, were mind blowing, you know. Yeah. But you know what? If, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, I, I, I've got to tell you, I, I love Mark Bowie's music more. Do Bowie. you? Interesting. Uh, records. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if I actually listen, if I tell you what I would listen to more, it's going to it'd probably be Mark Boland. Um, because I can listen to every single song Mark Boland wrote. I think it's a work of genius. Yeah. You know, I think, it, I think, I think the difference is that Boland had, wasn't that interested in the cultural impact? You mm-hmm. know, whereas, whereas Bowie was definitely had the cultural impact thing, so it worked out. Boland was just a great rock and roll star who's an effortlessly brilliant songwriter. I think um, Bowie had to grasp a bit harder to come up with his songs. And that's nothing wrong with that, you know. No, I get it. You know, he had to he had to he had to work harder to get to his genius and he got to yeah. his genius. I think if I was sat here now, Mark Bowler was sat in the chair over there, now a long curly grey hair <laughs> and he had a piece of guitar, but he'd be absolutely minorly strung yeah. an E minor chord. Singing yeah. along to it and writing a work of genius, and, and yeah. he, I've got rehearsal tapes of Mark Bolan. When he does that, he's, he's he's playing along. The band start joining in. He goes, "Stop! It's not working." You go, "Oh fuck me! That's another one hit." And he's, he's just chucked <laughs> in the bin. You know, <laughs> that's great. He was absolutely brilliant, but he had yeah. no, he didn't have the cultural context. Whereas Bowie knew exactly what he was doing, knew why he was there, and knew all the other strands and brought them in, and also yeah. generously brought them in. You know, he's always very generous about Mark, I, I yeah. thought. I mean, they were rivals and friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mark Bowen's last ever 
appearance is on that little podium on the Mark show just down the road from here in Manchester, two wow. yards from where I'm sat. They they got up and played together. They never played together, had they? And Bowman yeah. falls off the podium. Yeah. And Bowman looked brilliant. You know, people always think that Bowman, you know, looked shit at the end of his career, but he got it back and he looked He did. He looked like a really cool but he looked like a, he looked like a New York doll, which is yeah. ironic because Sills surveyed it's looking like Mark Bowman, you know. That's true. Sills <laughs> It just yeah, goes yeah, round and round. Corkscrew hair, a cut off t shirt. I mean, yeah, they were, they were kind of nicking off each other, weren't they? You know, yeah, but, yeah. But, Have you read but, Tony Visconti's? Oh, under, go ahead. Go ahead. I think Bowling's undervalued. I think, I think I mean, he is Bowling, too. I think Bowie, of course, he's the architect because he's got the cultural cachet. But I think musically, I mean, Bowling was first at Glam and first at doing the soul thing. You know, he was six months ahead of her, Bowie, doing the Glam soul yeah. crossover and apparently, you know, with albums like Futuristic Dragon, which weren't even hits in England. I remember he'd gone from having number one albums to 18 months later being number 34 on the charts. He's like, fuck. No, but, no. You know, so, but 1977, he had that show where he was on the podium and uh, Bowie fell off the podium. Yeah. Filmed in Manchester when he put the punk bands on telly. Loads of punk bands couldn't get on telly. He, he had he had Generation X on there, Bootsy Rats. I know they're not hardcore punk, but... No, you know, they're, 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 they're there. Yeah. They were there for us kids, you know, they were bands, they're the only time we could see them, you know, mm-hmm. and he put them on his show and he embraced the punk movement and he liked to think he, he liked to call himself the daddy of the punks, you know, he's a kid, yeah. you know, but no, you know what's really telling? Everybody goes, yes, he is. <laughs> yes. Nobody, nobody said, oh, he's, he's trying to get no. him on the hip scene. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. The punks all love Bowie and they all love Bowling, you know. Yeah. And the, and the goths as well. And they're two, yeah. they both go in on the scene, you know, this, why else did Bauhaus cover both of them, you know? True. And Brian Ingo as well. At the video, True. You know, so. Um, let me ask you this. What about Alice Cooper? He he came up in the book. I don't quite associate him with God. I see him more as a, I don't know, like a vaudeville performer. Plus, even at his most yeah. debaucherous in the 70s, I still you still get the sense from him that he, at his core, is a decent human being whereas that's not always true with some some of the other goths feel more conflicted or darker inside their soul is a little darker oh, yeah you know what i mean yeah alice coop has always been uh, theatrical but theatrical is part of goth you know oh definitely a lot of, definitely. A lot of the performance of theatrical i think you could say he's an influence on a vaudeville theatrical end of goth you know i mean i don't i'm not saying he's a pillar of goth but i think he's He's definitely an important. He's, see here, he was massive, you know. With uh, when schools out, there's number one in 1972. That was a massive hit, and, and the shock value of it mm-hmm. was a massive shock. He's looked on as being a complete antichrist, you know. Yeah. Which is funny when you get to know all about it because he's a <laughs> Republican voting card. Ca- he's a card carrying Republican golf player. Yeah. He's, he's, he's not the remotest diehard Christian. Uh, he's, 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 a past- he's a pastiche. Yeah. But so, yeah. So, in a way, Biggie Pop's the same. In yeah. fact, Joe Morrison, if he's alive today, would not be the radical that people perceive him as from mm. when he was younger. I never forget that Jim Morrison's father was the admiral in the American Navy who started That's the right. Vietnam War, the Tom Keenan stuff. You know, and he may have rebelled against his father, but I think by now he would be much more close uh-huh. to his father. You know, I think. I think Trump's inauguration would have probably has more performers on it if they hadn't all oh. died. <laughs> oh, I can't think about that. 
But you're right. I know you're right. I think as as fans, we tend to project onto people. You know, you you kind of. I've got. I've got. I grew out of that shit when I was twenty. You know, when people's hearts are broken by Morrissey not being the Morrissey they thought he was, but you Uh know the records are there. To me, it's not. I don't give a fuck if Morrissey talks shit. I just wish he wouldn't talk the shit. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make any difference to me. Listen to his music. I separate the art and the artist. I don't think an artist has some checklist of things where, where they agree with me. It's nice they do, but, but it's a bit selfish of me to expect them to agree with my worldview before I yeah. listen to their records. Yeah, good, <laughs> good point, good point. Well, John, we can so do I'm this for I'm hours. Like oh, yeah. Well, yeah, no, yeah. no go, I, I agree. I just, I, I feel like he's performing goth more than it being a true part of his soul. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, no, he's... he's He's, a, he's more minor influence, but I think the practicality yeah. of the vaudeville that he represented is important as as a slight influence on the scene. He's there, you know, and it's it's, it's kind of a, the way you sum it up. And I know the sex pieces are not goth, but there's an influence. They, they they are they do spark it in a sense because goth grows out of them. But Johnny Rotten's first ever uh, audition for the Pistols was miming to Alice Cooper songs on oh, a jukebox right. in the pub in London. <laughs> And for some welcome and Vivian, and also my Jordan, who became one of my best friends before she died, the three of them were there. And, and, and it's amazing when you talk to Jordan because she, it's a matter of fact for her because it's her life and it's not a brag thing. But she said, Michael Vivian turned to her and said, Is he, is he any good? And she goes, oh, He's fucking brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> he so had something. That story, yeah. Like it's just some crazy neighbor has got to join a band, you know. Yeah, but he's telling that it was Alice Cooper. Rock loved Alice Cooper, mm-hmm. and Rock loved Alice Cooper because he was not authentic, and because, in a sense, he was vaudeville and he was theatrical and he was completely fake. Because another thing you got to understand in British culture is we do like stuff that is it doesn't have to be real, like it doesn't have to be Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I mean it, hundred ten percent. I sweat and I do. You know, this is all from the heart. You know, we right. we right. But Springsteen's obviously popular here, but we see through that. We kind of yeah. see him. Maybe he's being slightly fake in a way, you know. We uh-huh. actually like those people, like Alice Cooper, go, I'm, you know, school's out, brackets, <laughs> I don't mean it. You know, we, we get that nuance. <laughs> that sort of, you know, you know it's, see, in America, it's different. In America, blue-collar rock, it, it has to be real, you know. Yeah. And Roxy Music never made it in America because of that. You know, people in America didn't get the nuance of Roxy Music. Brian Ferry's playing a part. He's he's acting yeah. out Brian Ferry. That's not Brian Ferry. That's like a version of Brian Ferry. That's why Sparks were massive in Britain and never brained in America. But what do they say about Sparks? The greatest British band who ever came from America. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. I'm finally seeing them live next weekend for the first time. Oh, I can't oh, wait. It'd be the great it'd be the greatest gig you've ever been to. That's They're bigger now than they were in yeah. the seventies. Yeah. Yeah, now they, they do two Arbor Halls. They're like, they're like fucking national treasures here. Yeah. Have you have you ever interviewed them? No, haven't never have. Oh, I've interviewed them. It's, it's have amazing. You? Like uh, uh, Russell's really earnest, and, and Ron is really fucking funny. He, he's he's dry, sarcastic, but yes. really, really lovable. So, yeah. Not the nice, so polite, really That's funny. That's what I've heard. That documentary um, that oh, yeah. uh, Edgar Wright made was so good. I feel like that's part of what's re, spark, re oh, yeah. you know, introducing them to new generations because that movie was so effective. 
it's so brilliant. And you know what's really great about it? It's two hours long, and you come out of it knowing less about them than you went in. You think, That's like, true. <laughs> you just don't That's think, true. Are, they, are they married? I, I can't look at them married. That's true. I just thought, it seemed like they just spent all day sitting together, writing music together. Yeah, they actually yeah. are married to Sparks. Yeah. That's true. And they're a stunning band. They are. And, and cryptic as well. They are so British. You know, the lyrics yeah. are incredibly cryptic. And they, they, they're kind of like, they are a complete facade. But in a weird way, when you peel away the facade, there's a reality in there, you know. Which, uh -huh. and it's, it's, it's like the most complicated crossword in the world. <laughs> yeah. Which we love, we love that here, you know. It's like, you do. You do. You like, see, born in the USA, I mean, that's actually almost cryptic for America. So the chorus is one thing and the verse is another. And I get that. Right. I think it's quite brilliant. I like the way people always misunderstand it. I don't have a problem uh -huh. with it. But in England, it wouldn't be, the chorus wouldn't be born in the USA. The chorus would be, would be really cryptic as well. That's right. <laughs> and, and, and Bruce Springsteen had to do it dressed in a wedding dress. That's we go, right. Okay, now we get it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. You guys are so much better at that than we are. Okay, what is your it's favorite? It's a cult it, yeah. cult cultural difference. That's all it is. It's, it not is. A, it's not a better or worse. I mean, I like both. And I, I, it does amuse me. It like, makes me laugh the way we have to like dress it all up in lots That's and lots true. of layers. It's, it's just... It's just a funny way of it's just it tells you an awful lot about the, the people that live in each country you know and then are cultural quirks and i love cultural quirks it's like yeah you go to albania there weird things they do there as well and they're fascinating we never want to lose those you know we don't, no. we don't want the whole world to be McDonald's for lots of reasons <laughs> no way no way um okay what is your favorite goth band if you had one if there was uh, well, only one discography on a desert okay. island. Who are you picking? And you can't pick T Rex because they're good, but they're not. You know, no, no, right down the line. I, would, I never do. I don't. I don't do lists. I'm not a list person. Okay. But there's two things I can say here. One, Susie is the ultimate goth icon. Though she detests the term goth, hates the word term yeah. goth. But she is the, the number one icon across the whole scene. First Banshee's album, completely groundbreaking. It and it never gets the credit. So it's one thing I want to do in this book. It's spotlight records like that, you know, the tribal drumming, the yep. amazing guitar playing, her vocals on it, her styling, the atmosphere of that record, game changer, must game changer. Another one is Bauhaus for all the reasons yep. that I explained before, you know, but um, the Bella Lugosi is, is an amazing record, you know, complete came out of blue. So if you, if I had to be put on the spot, like if I had to put on an island, uh -huh. it would be the catalogue of both those bands. Okay. That, that's not to demean any of the bands. I mean, some of the no. bands that most people never heard of made amazing records. And that's another thing I did with the book because I, I spread the spotlight out from the classic 14, 15 bands because I wanted mm -hmm. some bands put out one brilliant single and that was it. But I wanted people to go listen to that single because I think when you read my book, you should definitely uh, put Spotify on and listen to the, all the bands' music as you're reading the book because so it'll turn you on to stuff you never heard before. Yeah, that's exactly so, what I do, and yeah. I'm glad that yeah. um, as I said, it gets eventually to chapters being from bands, and that's my favorite thing to do is to play their music while I'm reading because up till now I'm it's the infrastructure of Gothic, but I'm so excited to read the rest of this. I do love the book. It uh, I just didn't want to wait until I was done reading it to talk to you because <laughs> that could be a little while, but I love it. Well, yeah, if you can't tell, I love British music especially alternative music especially alternative music of the 80s especially this kind of genre i this is my 
comfort zone, my wheelhouse. So I was so jazzed to talk to you. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, thanks for your time. And um, maybe I'm going to do a book tour in America in October. So oh. maybe, maybe you can work out where you... When you finish the book, I'll, I'll come through to Denver. Oh, uh, I would love that. An event on, on the way to the LA. Because what I was going to do is do uh, three days in New York. I've got five in LA. Then I've got 10 days in the middle to fill up. So I could just hop around on planes, go from city to city. So maybe we could do something like that. So... See if we can set that up. And the other thing I want to say, I know you've got Alan Jones on your T-shirt. I do. I know. I wore. I didn't mean to wear the exact opposite of Gothic today, but that's just. I no, no. Well, shirt I, well, I know how it's. I'm, I do I'm too. A, he was on music. here last year. I love him. Yeah, I'm a music um, organization called FAC, and I'm on the board, and he's on the board of that. So I met really? him by doing that. He's yeah, he's a very nice guy. He's very earnest, and he's yeah. he's he's very smart, and he's he's very good at being on the. Uh, on the board, you know, of, of this organization. So it was nice to meet him. Because musically, he occupies a very different world than I live in. Mm-hmm. But, but that's, not, that's not the point of stuff, is it? You know, we're all, mm-hmm. when you're on a board of music musician organization, you're looking after the rights of musicians. And uh, I, I think we're all fighting the same battle, really, you know. Mm-hmm. So I respect his talent to that. Really, music, I'm sure you find my music completely unlistenable. I find my music unlistenable sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's so great. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you know this. He is gigantic in Salt Lake City. He's like a he's like an he? unofficial member of the Mormon Church and a and a resident of Utah. He calls it his American hometown. He'll play show. He'll do a tour and he'll play like I see him here in Denver and he plays a club. It's a great turnout. He'll play sold out amphitheaters in Utah because for whatever reason they took to him in the beginning and the relationship there continues. He's gigantic wow. there. Oh. Yeah. I'll mention it. Are you a Mormon then? Are you a Mormon? Yeah, I, I'm not as diehard a Mormon, but I grew up Mormon, yes. Yeah, so it's more uh, more cultural than Yes, exactly. That's the exact yeah, word, yeah. cultural. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. yeah. That's all good. It's a book to your people, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, yeah. whether you uh, agree with their, their ideology, right. it's, it's not important, is it? It's your people, isn't it? Yeah. That's it. I, I'm yeah. very, I love my heritage. I don't, uh, believe every single thing but i love where i came from and my people and all that yeah absolutely my culture yeah 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 oh cool that's it yeah <laughs> well john thank you for talking with me i am so glad when i saw this book come out i wanted to read it and talk about it with you so badly and i'm so grateful we did this thank you so much no thanks and thanks for your time as well maybe maybe we'll hook up on the book tour i'd love it. it all comes out All right, there you have it, John Robb. That conversation could have gone for hours. He's another one of these people that I would just love to sit and have dinner with or sit in like a a bar somewhere or at a party and just rap about everything for hours because I just love the way this this guy thinks. Now, the book, again, The Art of Darkness, colon, The History of Goth. I have a spare copy to give away. Um, we're giving a lot of things away. As you know, we just surpassed a million downloads. So we've got four gifts to give away to Patreon supporters there. That, if you're listening now, that drawing happens this Sunday. Uh, next Sunday, I will be giving away, randomly drawing another winner for the book. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I love it. So I want to close it out. We mentioned about, you know, who are the, some of the pillars of goth. One's obviously Bauhaus and Bella Lugosi's dead. I figured let's close it out with Susie and Spellbound. That's one of the other pillars of this movement, right? 
All right, that's it. I don't have any book clubs coming up for a while. In fact, I don't really have any bonus material coming up for a little while. It might be another month or so. I got to finish John's book, which is going to take me a while. And then uh, I got to pick up some of the other ones that I've been getting lately. So it might be a little bit. All right. Uh, you guys know what to do. You can like our page on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. You can send us an email at uh, thehustlepod at gmail.com. And uh, we'll be back on Tuesday. We're covering Brit Pop this Tuesday. All right. Talk to you soon.